0: You, you said um, eliminate a person. What, what do you mean by that?
1: It means that the client have expressed a, a desire. Uh, they often have deemed high-value targets. If in the pursuit of an assignment, a high-value target has been identified, you would then have the, the concurrence and the mandate from the client to to take him out, we're out. Welcome to Spionpodden.
0: Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Spionpodden. Today, when we record this interview, it is the 23rd of August 2021 and my name is Mikael Hylin. Today we have a very well-informed guest as we're sat in a flat in Stockholm. He is an international consultant, a special services provider, one can say, a guest with the first-hand information that he so kindly shares with us. And I can assure you this will be first-hand information. You will hear that we protect the guest's identity, but I hope you understand and that you will find the audibility good anyway.
1: Welcome. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you.
0: Good, good, good. Listen, um, we are going to talk about Afghanistan and, and I know you've been there many years in very various positions uh, you are not a politician but um, tell me what, what how would you describe yourself
1: I would describe myself as a I guess an international consultant with a broad range of clients who range from, from governments private companies institutions private persons etc who have a specific quest, if you wish, for detailed information about uh, small and big issues, not only in Afghanistan, but also in other countries, who cannot turn to official information gathering services or suppliers, and therefore make use of people like myself.
0: And you, you said official, what, 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 what's the difference from official and
1: you? Well, the official information gathering apparatus, if you wish, is often connected to governments and their ability to to survey, to, to have networks of nationals of their own country, providing them with the information that that particular country needs in order to form foreign policy, to have... Local, regional, global strategies, etc. The the private person in this particular case, for perhaps many different reasons, they probably want to avoid the scrutiny of the public domain, either for secrecy reasons, for financial reasons, for uh, you know other reasons. For example, if a private company is looking to do. mine or an oil field, they may not wish to disclose that in the public domain, so they use not so much official information-gathering capabilities and then they use private individuals instead to ensure confidentiality and to make sure that the the circle of individuals who have access to that particular assignment slash information is limited.
0: So it's sort of... um Surveillance, uh, like military surveillance, but private?
1: It really depends on the client. It really depends on the circumstances. If the client wants to do or to go down that path, that is a service that I can offer, yes. Give me an example of what what can that be? Of the... Of service. For example, it could be, as I mentioned before, you have a, a large... Mining company, oil company, large international company who wants to establish a new mine, farm, production facility, etc. Emerging markets. In other words, markets that could be potentially risky politically, security wise. An assignment could be that you map out the local power structures mm-hmm. to make sure that the company then goes in and uses the right entry points, uses the right contact people establishes a network of individuals with whom they can initiate negotiations, etc. The public channels in those circumstances are not necessarily the best because you you might have frictions between the local power structures and the central government structures. You wanna know what those frictions are, you wanna know who the key people are, you wanna know what the triggers are, you wanna know how the local landscape looks like economically. Who controls the money? Who makes the decisions? Who are the true change agents?
0: So I'm reading from the internet the abstract of a paper by Fred C. Lunenberg at uh, Sam Houston State University. It's called The Role of the Change Agent. Every organizational change, whether large or small, requires one or more change agents. A change agent is anyone who has the skill and power to stimulate, facilitate and coordinate the change effort. Change agents may be either external or internal. The success of any change effort depends heavily on the quality and workability of the relationship between the change agent and the key decision makers within the organisation
1: and the old classic, who are the good guys and the bad guys. An assignment of that nature could possibly be anywhere between three to six months. That means that you, in other words, myself, you embed yourself in that local community. As, as a tourist, as a student, as a, as a benign person of interest in that particular community. B- what does benign mean? Benign would be non-threatening. In other words, uh, you would come in in flip-flops, shorts, t-shirt, you would be the surf bum, you would be the poor student, you would be you would be anyone who is new but is considered non-threatening. So if I were to come in with a suit and tie and a briefcase and, and a black Mercedes, people would know pretty much what was going on. So you would then try to adopt a a new personality which is based upon your best research what are the proper entry points for me to be able to gather the information map the information out so that I can present a product to the client in a benign way The other difference between the the public channels of information gathering versus the private ones is that you don't really have any rules of engagement. You're on your own. You don't really have any rules. You make stuff up as you go along. And you try to, to stay as low key as possible. Sounds amazing. Uh, it
0: sounds like another world, uh, which of course it is. But let's go back to Afghanistan, uh, because it it it's both a very interesting subject and very um, current one would say very at at the moment so so um how long have you been um, let's say quote working or or having an interest in Afghanistan
1: my my first assignment in Afghanistan was in 2001 and since 2001 i have been covering Afghanistan from a number of different vantage points, um, from a number of different clients, from a geographical perspective that is very often different. It could be the capital Kabul, it could be Kandahar, it could be Masar-Sharif, it could be Herat. Again, it depends on the client, it depends on the assignment, and it also depends on the situation security-wise, if you have easy access or not. So, I would say I've been to Afghanistan maybe 10-15 times since 2001. Each assignment has been of varied duration. Uh, The shortest one was 24 hours, the longest one was 6 months. And I've I've seen the country go through different periods in the last 20 years. Some of those periods have been rough, Um, other periods have been calm, quiet, uh, steady progress. And others have been total chaos
0: how how can you explain those different uh, periods
1: so in 2001 for example it was a very fragile period Um, the country had essentially just gotten itself on its knees Um, after the russians had pulled out there was a period of instability where for example massoud had sort of taken over parts of kabul it was completely safe to be in certain parts of Kabul and then across the street in another part, which was then ruled by a different warlord. It was completely unsafe. So you had...
0: So who was Massoud?
1: Masoud was essentially, um, I guess, the savior of Afghanistan as he led the, the, the former rebellion, I guess you can call it a rebellion, against the Russian forces. He was considered as possibly the strong man who could have had a chance, and I say this uh, could have, to unify Afghanistan in as proper of a way you could at that period of time. But sadly, he was assassinated. So he didn't really have the opportunity to embark on the, the development phase because he was solely part of the struggles against the... The former occupiers, and uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he was a respected person. He was a very smart individual, and uh, he knew Afghanistan in in ways that other people probably don't. He had his fingers in pretty much every ethnic minority, language, region, and uh, he was well liked.
0: So, what happened?
1: He was assassinated. Um, I don't recall exactly the the the, the date, uh, but he was assassinated by Tajik, I believe it was Tajik. And who who's Tajik? Tajik is a is a person from Tajikistan. It's also part of a large ethnic group in in Afghanistan, who are the Tajiks. Um, and you have um, Afghanistan is always. It's never actually been a country per se. That, I mean, we come back to that a little bit later, but one of the key problems the West has always done is they've treated Afghanistan as, as, a, as a normal country, when in fact, it's, it's a patchwork of tribes, of regions, of ethnic groups, languages, and, 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 and religions. And in treating the country as a normal country, there as lie, I think, one of the cornerstones of this enormous failure that, is, that we're now witnessing.
0: And how would you explain, the, the if we're already into that, how would you explain this uh, enormous failure?
1: Well, I think first we probably have to say that everything that has been done in Afghanistan is not a failure you have uh, you have small pockets of success. And don't forget, you've had various humanitarian organizations, you've had various UN organizations, you've had various development organizations from different countries, so it's not all military. The military aspect has been important in order to pave the way for the development work to happen, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to recruit normal development workers, humanitarian workers, if there is a ongoing war in a particular region. So the military was very necessary to sort of clear the ground uh, and make the circles larger and larger for for development work to take place. Having said that, the, the, the failure that we're now witnessing on a daily basis, I think, can be deeply rooted in one, um, the West's inability to treat Afghanistan as a patchwork of tribe, regions, languages, um, and religions, and ethnic minorities and groups, to um, the inability of the armed forces, the, the Americans, the international forces, to, to realize that you could not apply the same training protocols that you would in a normal military service in a country like Afghanistan. Uh, it's, it's evident now that ethnic minorities, the corruption within the ranks, the various warlords, etc., they would never fight for the flag of Afghanistan. They're much more likely to fight hard and well, and that they've proven for decades for their own region, for their own warlord, for their own ethnic minority, for their own language, for their own religion. So this, um, the belief, I think, was a good one. But in all practicality, it's one of the aspects of the training of the Afghan military services um, has been part of the fracture of structure that we see right now. The other part is the corruption part. How do you fight corruption? Well, you get rid of corrupt people, obviously. You, you try to get rid of the, the opportunities that the power structures have to money in order to buy influence that then can be used to secure further flows of cash it's a lot easier said than done. Um, I think corruption in Afghanistan is deeply rooted in um, how people live their lives, not always necessarily having to do with with financial transactions. It's connections, its hierarchies, its uh, family structures, its ethnic structures, um, etc. So it's it's. I think the West has underestimated the, the ability for the West to combat corruption. It's relatively easy to do in institutions in Kabul, but it's less easy to do in the provincial areas. Don't forget, 70% of the Afghan people live in the provinces. So you have, you have roughly 30% of the people Living in the four major cities of the country. The other part of the failure, I think, is the more sophisticated the armed, the external, the West, the Americans, NATO, etc., forces became in their surveillance, in their equipment, in their strategies, the more basic the Taliban became. So the more surveillance, the more satellites, the, the the more tapping, the more sort of utility of drones, um, you know, audio listening. So, I mean, the more sophisticated the good guys became, the more basic the bad guys became. And that void presented huge opportunities for the Taliban, who are used to living in caves, who are used to eating... Um, only bread and water for long periods of time in, in the winter, in the summer, in um, in geographical conditions that are horrendously tough to live in. Um, so it was a cat-mouse game. You couldn't simply fly in and bomb large areas. It would be a total waste of ammunition, money, surveillance time, equipment, you have it. So I think... If you do a case study in three, four five years and you look back at this from a military perspective, I think that will be one of the key points why we're now seeing uh, exactly what's happening. Uh, I think a lot of people are um, they're surprised over the speed at which the Taliban has been able to move forward. But I also think that is to do with the american policy of announcing a drawdown once they started announcing dates it was for the taliban to sit back and say okay you know we'll wait you guys out and i think from a strategic military and political perspective that's gonna probably be a wow moment when someone i'm sure lots of people are studying this right now uh, are going to go back and say, okay, the next time we're in this position, we're not going to announce to the rest of the world and to our bad guys that, hey, listen, on January first, we're not going to be here anymore.
0: It, it sounds so, a bit logic.
1: No, I mean, uh, I, I mean, obviously, it's uh, um, it's um, not only logic, uh, but again, I, I I don't I don't necessarily. Um, It's wrong to say that this has been a military failure. Don't forget, the military in the West and NATO is only a tool of politicians who speak very convincingly often of matters they know very little about. Have there been military blunders? Absolutely, no doubt. I think the training of the Afghan force, you have to point to the military. Uh, But a lot of other aspects of what has gone wrong, you can't point and blame the military. Um, I'll give you an example. If the total American force NATO force, plus the other nations that have been supported military structures and fighting of various kinds in Afghanistan, were given the carte blanche to beat the Taliban, uh, it would have taken less than three years to do oh. without the politicians and without the so-called rules of engagement. Wars today are not fought. They're fought by soldiers, but the rules that these soldiers are operating under are done by politicians and lawyers who very often know very little about warfare in general, and in particular warfare in a geographical context like Afghanistan. So I think there's a lot of blame to go around, so, so, so pinpointing this to a military failure I don't think it's fair, it's not fair to the men and women who bled, died, cried uh, and survived uh, in, in Afghanistan. I think there is a lot of political blame to go around.
0: And now we continue uh, my interview with a well-informed guest, an international special services provider who has many years of experience from Afghanistan and its destiny. And as I said in the beginning, we're protecting the guest's identity by pitching the voice. When we uh, spoke the first time about this uh, episode, you said something about... um there's, they, they kept sending the wrong people. Um, but what do you mean by that? Okay,
1: so very often when I meant they, uh, I didn't necessarily mean the military. The military is a trained personnel force, highly skilled, highly equipped. They have different capabilities. Um, they have different type of assignments that they focus on. When I meant they, um, I meant essentially the entire humanitarian-slash-UN apparatus, because, I mean, it is a big apparatus. And very typically what happens in in conflict-slash-post-conflict situations, you... It's very difficult to recruit hardcore professionals. I mean, experienced development professionals who've done this kind of work... Uh, In other countries and have done so successfully so given the fact that it's difficult to recruit proper professionals what you're often left with is a whole group of it's almost like a circus no I mean they go from one conflict to another post-conflict situation and to them it's a rush it's it's an adventure Mean the adrenaline rush. It's 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 a little bit of a bragging right to having said oh, I've been in 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 East Timor right after the war, or I was in, in DRC, or I was in CAR, or I was in Yemen. It, it's it's just to clarify.
0: DRC is the Democratic Republic of Congo, and CAR is uh, Central African Republic.
1: It, it's 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 sort of an extra feather in the hat, whereas. It's great that they're there but the skill sets, the, the attitudes, their capabilities of actually doing good for the country at that very fragile moment in time, I think, I think has to also be part of the playing um, game. I, I call them happy amateurs. Uh, they have the best intentions, for sure. Many of them have worked in conflict, post-conflict situations before. The problem is they don't necessarily always have the right skill sets. And because it is difficult to recruit proper professionals for these type of jobs in these type of situations, you're left with a whole group that are, I would put it at best, mediocre at what they're doing and that has huge repercussions for how the initial development phases of that particular country looks like and that fragile period right after a conflict when the national government perhaps doesn't even exist when you don't have institutions you don't have a functioning police force you don't have a functioning military Uh, and on top of that you have bunch of really well-paid international humanitarian supporters and development workers um, who come in and said okay you know we did this in country X so therefore it must work in country Y in other words here and I think I think that also has to be part of the equation when you examine what has gone wrong in Afghanistan absolutely
0: but you said that they're at the best mediocre, but why don't you get the best?
1: Very simple. Uh, let's say you, you've, uh, you've worked in development for 20 years. Yeah. You, you, you're towards the end of your career, uh, perhaps you're not as adventurous anymore. Uh, perhaps you've been able to secure a more senior job in Paris, New York, Geneva, Vienna, any other cushy country. Why would you want to go to Afghanistan? very difficult to convince. And these people very often make good salaries. And and the UN and the humanitarian world is often strapped because they have very small budgets. Uh, They can offer good salaries. They can offer good packages, but only to attract the the circus of, 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 of happy amateurs. If you want true development professionals, if you want a true institutional... Development experts if you want to have true negotiators if you want to have true um, um i mean individuals who 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 are professionals it is very difficult to attract to countries like afghanistan very difficult that's not to say that they're good people there but I'm talking about the vast majority of people
0: and if we now since we're talking about this how would you um how would you explain yourself in this, um, in this matter?
1: Um, I, I would say uh, in this equation, I would be, I guess, a combination between a, um, a professional uh, that has a, a, a particular skill set that um, other people are willing to pay for, uh, where they very often have used me and my services in the past, They rely on me, they know me often, they know that um, what is being presented, what is being delivered is of high quality. It's done on time, and um, they then of course have plausible deniability.
0: Can you give us an example of what you've done in in Afghanistan?
1: Um, I can give you a couple of different examples. Um, in, in 2001, for example, um, I was, I was asked to, to go to Afghanistan. Um, and the, the assignment essentially was to try to map out, um, um, a, a, the corruption behind a particular ministry, which at that stage was the, the, um, a key ministry for the development phase to take part. It's it was sort of the anchor, if you wish. And um, everyone knew who 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 were the the corrupt individuals. Everyone knew from where they they got their money from. They 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 knew their modus operandi. They knew their own particular networks, not only in Kabul but also in the provinces. Uh, but they didn't really have any proof. And proof in Afghanistan is dangerous. Uh, in particular, when you're trying to challenge and or get rid of people who are in power, who are corrupt. Um, my particular brief was to map out um, funding sources, different kinds of connections, modes of payments, um, uh, the entire network of couriers to and from Kabul, from from the provinces uh, and the districts uh, and at the same time provide um, a list of possible actions that my client could then pursue. So that was one of the assignments in uh, 2001. Uh, there has also been several assignments that, that deals with the uh, um, the eradication of their primary source of income, which is opium. Uh, something that everyone knows but very few people talk about. Um, Afghanistan is, is bordering seven countries. It's landlocked. The terrain is very often rugged, mountainous, and extremely hard to get to. So, you would have large puppy fields in in, in valleys you would have uh, the processing plants or labs would be underground and or in caves for heroin then for for, for the processing of, of raw opium which is then turned into several other drugs that are being produced in these labs and/ or sold as as raw products and then being taken to to other countries for processing of, of all kinds of drugs um, that is the, the primary export and, and source of income of Afghanistan and it is big money so part of, of a long series of, of assignments were to essentially pinpoint um, the various locations um, the the hierarchies and the structures who who ran, owned, and organized these different plants and regions and processes and transportation routes. Um, it was to, um, if possible, uh, eliminate on-site individuals who were deemed persons of interest, uh, and of course then to provide a a list of uh, possible actions that the client could pursue on on their particular path of of attacking this problem with with bigger resources, with better equipment, uh, much more pressure, external pressure.
0: You you said um, eliminate a person. What what do you mean by that?
1: Um, it means that. The client have expressed a, a desire. Uh, they often have, they call them persons of interest. Um, in um, in Iraq, they had the deck of cards. In Afghanistan, they have they have other lists of individuals uh, who are deemed high value targets. Uh, if in the pursuit of an assignment a high-value target has been identified um, you would then have the the concurrence and the mandate from the client to to take him out or her out
0: and since this is opium uh, i'm sure there's it's a very big and powerful client Um, let me let me ask you can you try to take us back and tell us a little bit i mean you now you've been explaining how how one can transform to become a good agent or or a good surveillance uh, person can you try to take us back and tell us what how you went on and how you proceeded with this uh, special or oh, these assignments i mean i'm sure there are f- several assignments but regarding opium for instance how, how did you how did you blend in? How did you? How did you work?
1: There's a couple of entry points you can uh, you can pursue. Um, you can either be someone who has access to equipment that the producers of of of, of the final product needs in order to make it more efficient, uh, in order to make it more covert, in order to make it less smelly, less smoky. So if you, if you pose as, as someone who is able to provide them with equipment that would make their entire drug refining process smoother, faster, cheaper, more covert, uh, you're going to create a lot of interest from their side. They might want to be able to talk to you. That's one way. The other way is that you pose as a buyer. You want to buy drugs. And you do that covertly
0: so so um it sounds like
1: pure uh, and dangerous undercover uh I mean everything has a risk, no doubt i mean if if you walk across the street in a major city of the world, you run the risk of being run over um, the the yes no it, it's it's uh it's it's risky business absolutely. Uh, but I would say that you know every every assignment is being studied carefully. You you try to as much as possible have have exit points. You try to know the landscape very well before you enter something. Um, you um, you're often quite well equipped, um, physically trained, mentally prepared, uh, and you know the power structures you know, the people, you know, before you go in. So, so very often these assignments, they have uh, a study phase, which is absolutely crucial. Then you have the operational phase, which is you, your team on the ground, doing what you're supposed to be doing. And then you have the, the exit phase, or uh, the, the, the phase where you sort of gradually, you know, remove yourself either either by purpose or, or by force.
0: Can you can you give us an example of, of how a team like that could look like?
1: Um, in my case, I have always used my own team. Trust is a major, major component when you're doing this kind of work. Um, I have used... Um, these are often ex-military. Not always, but often ex-military. They are mentally very sound. They're not necessarily the the, the largest men or women, because if you're too big, too strong, too much muscles, you're you're obvious. Uh, so. Um, and the type of nationalities, it really depends on the assignment. You you need to be able to either blend in by virtue of looking the same as the local population. Language skills is a huge component of this. And then, of course, the technical skills. And the technical skills here could be, uh, you know, sophisticated IT systems. It could be military and or explosives. Uh, it could be the ability to... Uh, um, to negotiate, in other words, to, to be able to psychologically evaluate a situation, a person, a group, in order to determine the best approach and or entry point um, could be, for example, if you have an engineering skill that is, is required. So the composition is small teams, uh, very mobile, very agile, and very often well equipped. And
0: roughly, how, how many people do you have to choose between in the group that you trust 100%? Roughly.
1: Uh, well, you never trust anyone 100%. Um, that is, you, you just never do. I would say I have anywhere between 10 to 15 people who I would not have any doubt on calling upon their services depending of course on the assignment uh, in some cases um, you you might need a woman for a particular piece of service um, and in that case you eliminate the other 14 or 15 whatever you have in your in, in your circle of trust but these individuals they also work for other clients so if, if you have a good skill um, and you're part of that world, you're just not going to be able to not work because your services are always going to be very high in demand. It might not be in Afghanistan it might be in in another country
0: so you need to have people that can
1: acclimatize uh, well as well yeah, absolutely. I mean they need to be able to 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 hit the ground running and they they need to be agile absolutely but
0: you said one can never trust a person to a hundred percent Can you give us an example of that?
1: I cannot, but I have, I have other friends in the same line of business uh, who have encountered situations like that. Luckily for me, I have not had that experience. But I think um, you just have to be very careful, very careful. There is essentially only one rule in in this in this particular line of business, and that is never get caught. Why? Because the consequences will be absolutely detrimental. But what does that mean? You're very likely to get hurt physically um, uh, at best and uh, yeah, and or die.
0: Again, can you give us an example?
1: No, because I'm still sitting here.
0: Yeah, but can you give us uh, someone else's example? something you can you give us a story um
1: sadly yes um now we're not in afghanistan no now we're somewhere else um um where we had been on on an assignment for 28 days um we had been um uh, I wouldn't say our cover had been blown, but there were certain parts of the, of the local makeup that just didn't feel right. We were making an exit, a, a slow one, purposeful one, and there was one member of our team um, who, who, who didn't make it. And when you
0: said the makeup didn't, Really feel right, but what, what do you mean by that?
1: It's 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 difficult to pinpoint exactly what it was, but it just didn't feel right. Um, we had an interpreter uh, that the client had supplied us with. He wasn't part of my team. It was one of the preconditions that the client had insisted. Um, and. I think his, um, uh, he was probably on the take, not only from the client, but also from other sources on the ground. And I think he probably alerted someone in the local power structure that we were there. Um, I don't have any proof of this, it's it's a suspicion, and uh, made phone calls and arrangements for the entire team perhaps to 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 be taken or uh but luckily we it wasn't my decision alone uh it was more that you know we all felt like you know something is not right here uh, uh, very difficult to pinpoint exactly what it was um but yeah so we made a a very slow purposeful exit uh, but sadly there was uh one person that didn't make it back.
0: But when you say part of the game, it, it sounds a bit like a cliché. And of course, I'm, I, I, I can understand it is part of the game, but it's really hard to understand that you're in this kind of a game. So explain to me, how, 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 can one, how, can, how does it feel to be part of a game where you don't really know you're going to survive?
1: Well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I mean, every assignment is carefully studied, planned for, uh, meticulously. Skills are being put to work. The mapping of the local infrastructure, the, the geographical conditions, people, languages, change agents, etc. So, I mean, it's 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 not like we jump in in a parachute and start shooting. Never, ever, ever. These are meticulously planned operations, assignments. Um, They are carried out by people who are true professionals in their own right. Uh, But the likelihood of something going wrong is also very high. But the ability to deal with these circumstances are also embedded in the team. So you don't have a plan B, you have plan C, D. E, F, etc, etc, etc You have exit strategies, you have You have catch bags If if we're sitting in this room and we're not liking This situation, you grab a bag And you go, and in that bag You shouldn't have anything in the room that you can't leave In less than 30 seconds
0: What's in a bag like that?
1: <laughs> it depends where you are in the world, but um, Let's say Afghanistan Afghanistan um, You have a satellite phone, you have one or two small arms. You have ammunition to last for at least a a while. You have you have water. You might have some some dry food, some beef jerky. Uh, you might have a warm jacket, small the one that you you wrinkle up. You might have a small medical kit. You might have toilet paper. You might have clean socks. It sounds Bizarre, but if if you can't walk, you you're absolutely useless. And if you have blisters in your ass, man, you you can't run. So, you know, it, it's uh, keeping your toes clean and your ass clean is is very very important. So it's it's a grab bag, and uh, we all have them. And everything in the room or the location is is just not important.
0: Well, <clears throat> I I really. I, I think this is extremely interesting and it's kind of shocking to hear. Uh... This was the end of part one of The Consultant, an international special services provider. Part two of this incredible guest's story with focus on Afghanistan will follow soon. If you want to get some extra material from this episode... Go to Facebook and page Spionpodden. Sometimes I put on Instagram, spion.podden. So until next time, bye.